Greetings from Pocosin Baptist Church, your sister Pillar Network Church in Pocosin. I'm so grateful for your pastor who filled in for me when I was on sabbatical earlier this year. Our people were blessed by his preaching, and I'm grateful for his faithful preaching, for his friendship, for his ministry here at Nansman River, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to return the favor and preach God's word to you. This is a church that we pray regularly for at Pocosin Baptist Church. We're so grateful for you. Uh, please, if you will, turn in your copy of God's word to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is our text for this morning. And after introducing himself in chapter 1 as both David's son and a king in Israel, Solomon, the book's author, begins by, by lamenting the apparent meaninglessness of life. He concludes chapter 1 by recounting his search for meaning by pursuing wisdom, only to, only to discover that wisdom, too, was meaningless and an empty pursuit without God. In our text this morning in chapter 2, Solomon's pursuit of meaning continues. And here in this chapter, we'll learn that there is nothing meaningful under the sun. But before we examine this text together, would you pray with me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in the opportunity to sing your praises and the opportunity to study your scriptures and the opportunity to do it together as brothers and sisters. Father, I thank you for the saints here at Nansman River Baptist Church. I thank you for their faithfulness to the gospel. I thank you that we can come here, me and my family this morning, and sing the same types of songs that we sing every Sunday at Pocosin Baptist Church and, and pray for missionaries like we do and, and sing your praises and study your word. Father, we thank you for the kindred spirits here in this room that we have because of our shared faith in Jesus. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. Father, there might be some in this room this morning that are chasing after the wind. There might be some in this room who are looking at their lives this morning and wondering, just like the preacher, why there seems to be no meaning under the sun. People that are feeling vanity is vanities, all is vanity. Father, we pray that your word would speak to them right where they are this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would preach louder than I can preach and that you would do what I cannot do and speak to the heart. We pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As I prepared for this morning's sermon, I spent some time listening to the sermon that was preached here last week by the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Danny Aiken. And by the way, a big thanks to Ryan Bryce for letting me follow that up. <laughs> now, I, I shudder to disagree in public with one of my heroes, and yet Dr. Aiken said something in his sermon last Sunday that I disagree with vehemently. 90s music is not pathetic. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't know what Dr. Aiken listens to. Perhaps if all the 90s music you've listened to are the Spice Girls and Britney Spears, I would agree with you. But there is much more in 90s music. Those who have ears to hear know there is good there. Uh, one of my favorite musicians, John Mayer, really launched his career in the late 90s. And by the early 2000s, he was a Grammy-winning artist with a multi-platinum album. And yet, despite his incredible success, John Mayer was, and perhaps still is, very unhappy. And like the musicians that Dr. Aiken mentioned last week, like Peggy Lee, like Kansas, and like the Rolling Stones, John Mayer also wrote a song about it. And that song goes like this. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. He says, 
I'm not alone. I wish I was. Because then I'd know I was down because I couldn't find a friend around to love me like they do right now. I'm dizzy from the shopping mall. I searched for joy, but I bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is at all. And then towards the end of the song, John Mayer concludes by listing some of the things that he's searched for and tried to find meaning in and yet not found happiness. He says, friends, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. Opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Microphone, check. Messages waiting for me when I come home, check. And yet, something's still missing. Whether John Mayer meant it or not, Like many people before him and after him, he understood something radically true about life under the sun. You can have everything that the world says matters. Friends, money, sex, possessions, and more, and still feel like something's missing. Because meaning in this life cannot be found from this life. Meaning in this life cannot be found from this life. That's a big idea that our text, I believe, teaches and that I want to unpack this morning as we walk through this text together. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon gives us two reasons why meaning in this life cannot be found from this life. Reason number one is that life is ultimately unsatisfying. Reason number two is that death is absolutely unavoidable. That's going to be our outline this morning. And then we're going to respond to that by considering the the final verses in chapter two and how we should respond to the lack of meaning under the sun. So let's walk through our text together, beginning with reason number one, life is ultimately unsatisfying. Look with me at verse one. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Solomon begins with something of an experiment. Let's see if meaning in life, meaning under the sun, can be found by trying to squeeze every drop of pleasure out of this life. And oh my, what an experiment this is. If you're honest, every single one of us at one time or another has probably daydreamed about what we would do if we won the the lottery. If you got millions and millions of dollars just all of a sudden at your disposal to do whatever you wanted with it, you've probably daydreamed what you would do with it. Solomon didn't have to daydream. Solomon had everything, anything that his heart desired, he experienced. And look at some of the things that he experiences, some of the ways he looks for pleasure in this life in verses two through nine. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Let's just, in those verses, kind of go through some of the places that Solomon seeks after meaning. First, in verse 2, he tries laughter. Uh, we're not sure if he's referring to maybe a lighthearted approach that, that isn't really concerned with suffering. Maybe like Marie Antoinette, who reportedly said, let them eat cake when people came to her about the lack of bread. Maybe it's that sort of approach to life, or maybe what Solomon's talking about is, is he got all the best stand-up comedians and brought them into the palace. That would certainly kind of fit with the rest of the chapter. You know, you and I can go and binge something on Netflix. He just says to the guy, tell me a joke. But he says, it's folly. It's, it's vanity. This does not satisfy. In verse 3, he tries alcohol. Solomon's not your average wino who's drunk by 11 a.m. He's a connoisseur. This guy is, is drinking the best alcohol available to him, but not to excess. He says in that verse, verse 3, that his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. In other words, he's not getting plastered. He has enough sobriety to kind of enjoy the best that this life has to offer without completely losing his wits. In verses four to seven, he tries luxury. He built luxurious houses. Most of us know that Solomon's most famous building project was the temple. That project, that building project took seven years and 135,000 laborers. But that was probably not his most luxurious building project. The scriptures tell us that Solomon took seven years to build the temple and 13 years to build his own house. And this is just one out of several, if not many, houses that Solomon had built. He has the height of Old Testament luxury. He's got the best house on the block. But it's not just luxury, it's not just luxurious houses, it's luxurious landscaping. Anybody in here care about landscaping? I never cared until I hit about 35. And all of a sudden I started walking in the neighborhood with my wife and family and coveting other people's green grass. Some of you know what that's like. Why can't my grass look like that? I read recently that a major growing trend in many parts of our country is that people are now painting their grasses green so that it looks nice. Now, if that's you, if that even, maybe some of you are laughing, other of you are like, I should try that. You would really like what Solomon's got going for him. Because he's got personal gardens, he's got private parks, he's got countless orchards and vineyards, and even a sophisticated irrigation system to keep everything looking green. And he says, notice, he made it for myself. He's not building this stuff to bless his community, a little park for the kids. This is for him. Luxurious houses, luxurious landscaping, and then he has the luxury of slaves to answer his every beck and call. Now, most of us can't imagine owning slaves like Solomon boasts about in verse 7, and that's a good thing. But before we move on too quickly, how many of us would like the idea of having somebody that did all of the things in your life that you hate to do on your own? What if men... You had a personal barber to keep your hair perfectly trimmed and your face shaved. Ladies, what if you had a personal cosmetician to perfectly apply your makeup every day? Kids, how about a butler to clean your room? What about a, a personal masseuse? or a maid, or a gardener, or a chef, or a personal assistant, or a personal trainer to help you get in shape, or private security, or chauffeurs, or nannies to deal with the kids. 
Solomon's entourage may have been the greatest in world history because the Bible tells us the food that he needed for his household every single day was enough food for about 35,000 people. That's a baseball stadium. All those people there to meet your every need. Solomon has all the luxury that you can ever imagine. In verse eight, in verses seven and eight, he tries to find satisfaction through wealth. In a day when your livestock was often a measure of wealth, Solomon was loaded. First Kings four verse 26 says he had 40,000 stalls for his horses and chariots. Today's equivalent would be a massive warehouse loaded with all the best vehicles that money can buy. All the best motorcycles, all the best convertibles, all the best SUVs, you've got everything. Solomon is absolutely overflowing with wealth. It wasn't just the animals either. Solomon was stacked with cash. 1 Kings 10, 14 says that every year of his reign, he brought in over 25 tons of gold. I I don't know how much that's worth, so I asked Google. That's about $1.5 billion in annual income every single year. And that's just the gold. 1 Kings also tells us in chapter 10 that there was so much silver during Solomon's reign that it was as common as gravel. This guy is absolutely loaded with cash. Verse 8. Solomon tries entertainment. Today, via the internet, we have personal access to music and other entertainment from all over the world. What Solomon had may have been even better. Instead of going to your Spotify account and say, let's play a song by Taylor Swift or whomever you listen to, Solomon could just say, Taylor, play it. Because she's there. He's got them all in his house. Men and women singers. He's got all the entertainment. He doesn't need to binge some TV show. He's got all the best entertainment in the world actually live and in person. And at the end of verse 8, Solomon tries to find satisfaction through sex. The word translated concubine in verse 8 is only used here in the entire Bible. And many scholars believe that it's probably related to the word for a female body part, which just adds to the crassness and the crudeness of what Solomon says he's got. He's acquiring. We know from 1 Kings 11 verse 3 that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Verse 9, Solomon tries to find satisfaction through fame. He enjoyed a fame that was absolutely unrivaled in his day. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24 says that the entire world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. He's an influencer long before there was influencers. So when Solomon says in verse 9 that his wisdom remained with him, he's saying that even as he's living this foolish life, pursuing pleasure, God didn't take away that supernatural gift of wisdom. And as a result, nobody on the planet was as famous as Solomon. Young people wanting to be recognized, you like something being shared or liked on social media, the the hit that you receive when people recognize you and value you and appreciate you, Solomon had all of that. And what was the end result of having all of this stuff? Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's two observations I think we can make from verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, 
Solomon makes it clear that life under the sun is often pleasurable. Here's a, an area I think sometimes as Christians that we take a wrong step. I think we're quick to tell people, probably especially young people, that you will not find meaning, ultimate, lasting pleasure in the things of this life. That's true. We need to tell them that. But if we don't also tell them that you can sometimes find temporary pleasure in the things of this life, then when they begin to taste the pleasures of sin and they realize this actually feels good, this actually is fun, I actually enjoy this, then they might begin to think that they've been lied to. Solomon says in verse 10, his heart found pleasure in all of this stuff. The problem is not that there is no pleasure under the sun, but that there's no lasting pleasure under the sun. Life, sin, disobedience often feels good. Just not for long. Let me tell you, dear brother, sister, friend, if you chase after meaning in luxury, in alcohol or drugs, in sex, you will find pleasure. You may even find a lot of it. Life under the sun is often pleasurable, but that pleasure does not last. The pleasures of sin in some ways, it's kind of like eating ice cream. You go to the ice cream shop, you get a bowl of your favorite ice cream or a cone or whatever it is, and you take that first bite and it tastes amazing, but it's gone in a few seconds. And you just want more. So too with the pleasures of sin. Worldly pleasures do not satisfy. They do feel good in the short term, but in the end, they will leave you always wanting more. Like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons when Homer told him, you're the richest man I know, Burns replied, ah, oh, yes, and I would trade it all for just a little bit more. That is what the pleasures of this world do. They don't ultimately satisfy. In verse 11, Solomon makes it clear that life under the sun is ultimately unsatisfying. Notice he says that word again that you're going to see all over the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, all was vanity and striving after wind. Remember that word vanity literally means vapor. Like your, your breath outside on a cold winter's morning. You see it and then it's gone. Like blowing bubbles with your children. You see it, it's there for a second and then it's gone. Like a puff of smoke, it's gone. It's a vapor. All of this stuff that Solomon sought for happiness in was a vapor. It was vanity. Chasing after meaning under the sun is like chasing after the wind. You're not going to find it. You're not going to catch it. There's no ultimate meaning under the sun. It's ultimately unsatisfying. Now, dear brother, sister, friend, if you're honest with yourself, you know that he's right. You know that he's right. You know that as pleasurable as all this stuff in life is, none of it is ultimately satisfying. Have you ever heard the perfect joke that was so funny that you thought, I never need to laugh again? I'm fine. Of course not. You hear a funny joke, what do you want to do? Tell me another one, right? But there's something in it. You want more. Or had the perfect drink that completely quenched your thirst so you never needed to drink again? Or had a day of pampering where you just enjoyed all the luxuries of life and you thought, you know, I'm good for now, forever. I don't really need that again. Or have you ever enjoyed a song or a show or a movie that was so perfect you never needed to be entertained again? Do you remember the old movie, I think came out in the 90s, another th great thing from the 90s, 
the Truman Show with Jim Carrey, this whole movie, they, they've turned this man's life into a reality show. And at the end of the movie, when the reality show is over and Truman escapes from the bubble they created for him, there's these two characters watching the show and they say, what else is on? Where's the TV guide? That's us. As soon as that show you're binging is over, you look for the next one. As soon as the song is over, you look for the next one. You'll never find any piece of entertainment that ultimately satisfies your craving. Or you've never had the perfect intimate encounter that was so good, you said, I'm taking a vow of celibacy now. I'm done. That was perfect. Of course not. You've never achieved the perfect level of fame that you said, now I'm satisfied. I don't need anybody to recognize me ever again. You know that these things do not bring ultimate meaning. Maybe you say, well, the problem is I don't have enough of those things. Solomon had all you could ever imagine. And he said, it's still vanity and chasing after the wind. Meaning in this life cannot be found from this life because life under the sun is ultimately unsatisfying. Reason number two is that death is absolutely unavoidable. Look in your Bibles at verse 12. Solomon says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is, va is vanity. Last week, Dr. Aiken taught about Solomon's pursuit of wisdom in verses uh, 12 to 18 of chapter one, Solomon concludes in those verses that in mo this is in verse 18, in much wisdom is, is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words, the more you know, the more sorrow. I think we've seen that in our world today, haven't we? We have access to information quicker than any point in human history. And what does it lead to? More sorrow. You look at what's happening in the world around you and knowing more information about what's happening in the world does not lead you to feel happier and more satisfied. So Solomon says, wisdom, pursuing wisdom, looking for meaning and knowing something is vanity. But here in chapter two, he wants to make it clear that having wisdom isn't entirely worthless. Just like it's better to see than to be blind, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. So generally speaking, whether you're a Christian or not, you will likely have a much more enjoyable life on this earth if you're wise instead of a fool. So for example, if you make foolish decisions with your money and spend half of your paycheck on Starbucks and Chick-fil-A every week, you're gonna struggle in the way that the wise person that makes better decisions won't struggle. Pursuing wisdom does lead to relative benefits in this life. It's better to be wise than to be a fool. Now, this won't send a person to heaven or to hell, but it does affect our experience along the way. But Solomon's point in these verses is that whatever benefit it has in this life to be wise, it's temporary. Because look at verse, uh, verse um, 18, or 15 rather. Verse 15, he says, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What's going to happen to the, both the wise and the foolish person? They're both going to die. If you were to dig up the bones of Albert Einstein, 
they would be virtually indistinguishable from a John Doe who died around the same time and never graduated high school. The wise and the fool both die. So Solomon says, yeah, it's better to be able to see than to be blind. It's better to have some wisdom than be a fool. And yet, in the end, the same thing happens to everybody. We all die. Uh, perhaps you're thinking, well, sure, life is temporary, but maybe if we li if live a meaningful life, we can leave a legacy that lasts forever, can't we? Well, look at verse 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Why does Solomon hate his life? Because the wise and the fool, both of them, he says there's no enduring remembrance. Now it's true that some people are remembered long after they're gone. But if you're not there to hear about it, does it really matter? How many people are quickly forgotten? Woody Allen once joked, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. Now, some of you are thinking, well, who's Woody Allen? And that's the point. So Solomon's saying, listen, nobody's remembered, and Woody Allen's not even dead yet. And we don't know who he is. How quickly will every single one of us be forgotten? Now, this is a, li a little bit coarse and crass to think about, but most of us, the time will come when we will die and there will be a big gathering or a funeral, a remembrance of some sort, and then people will perhaps go to a graveside and say some words and pray, and then what are they going to do? They're going to go eat lunch. And they're going to go to bed. And they're going to wake up the next day and they're going to go to work. And some of them are going to grieve, but many of them are going to move on. Death is absolutely unavoidable. Now, as bad as all of that is, as bad as it is to think that all of us are going to be eventually forgotten under the sun, Solomon says it actually gets even worse. Because everything that you work for in this life could evaporate just like that. That's what he says beginning in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Many people spend their whole lives building wealth and then die before they ever get to enjoy it. And what happens, dear brother, sister, friend, with all that hard-earned money and stuff? Usually it goes to your next of kin, right? Well, Solomon asks, what happens if that person is an absolute fool? You built an empire of dirt, as Johnny Cash would sing. And all of it goes to some person that doesn't know what they're doing. This is vanity. This is striving after the wind. What if that person doesn't appreciate all that you worked for? Maybe some of you, you're going through this right now as you near the end of this life and you've worked hard, hard, hard for so much. And you look at those who are coming after you and you're thinking, really? You wouldn't say it out loud, especially if they're in the room, but you're thinking it. Howard Hughes died in 1976 as one of the richest men in the world. He had no direct descendants, 
no immediate, immediate relatives, and he had no will to determine where his money should go. In some conversations with people, he made it clear that he didn't want some long-lost distant relative to come to his estate and get some of his hard-earned cash. And yet, when he died without a will, that's exactly what happened. Seven years after his death, his $2.5 billion estate was divided up among 22 distant cousins. Solomon says, that's great evil. And in Solomon's case, this ended up being his legacy too. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a fool. And all that Solomon worked for, his palaces, the temple, relations with other countries where there's peace, where the territory of Israel has expanded this incredible, glorious, beautiful kingdom that he inherited from his father David. All of it is lost in a matter of days or weeks after Rehoboam takes the throne as the kingdom is divided. This is vanity and striving after wind. Just as an aside, those of you that are followers of Jesus perhaps might consider especially as you near the end of this life. The words of one preacher when he said, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Instead of waiting to see what everyone's gonna fight over after you leave, why not plan to, as, as Randy Alcorn says, he says, you can't, you can't send it with you, so send it on ahead. Lay up treasures in heaven by using your wealth for the glory of God now. Instead of suffering the same fate as Solomon and Howard Hughes and countless others. Well, Solomon concludes his assessment of the situation in verse 23 when he says, All his days, all the days of life under the sun are full of sorrow and his worth is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You want a summary of life under the sun? Here it is. You live you work, you hurt, you struggle to go to sleep, and in the end, you die. You're welcome. That's life under the sun. Meaning in this life cannot be found from this life because death is ultimately unavoidable. Now, all that's super depressing. When COVID started, when the pandemic first hit and we were shut down at Pocosin Baptist Church, I had the bright idea to study the book of Lamentations as a church. I thought, you know, we're all lamenting anyways. Why not study the book of the Bible? It's all about lamenting. And so we did. So I taught through the book of Lamentations. When we finished the series, one of our members said to me, I'm so glad this is over. If Lamentations had one more chapter, I think I would have jumped off a bridge. Some of you are thinking that, and we're only in chapter 2 of 12 in Ecclesiastes. So, again, you're welcome. You can thank your pastor when he gets back for giving that to you. Maybe he wanted you to be depressed while he was gone. That's probably what it is. He'll come back and it'll be like Philippians joy and everybody's excited that he's here. Solomon's not done yet. There is hope. There is hope in Ecclesiastes 2. Look with me, beginning in verse 24. Let me read the verses to you together, and then let's think about how to respond. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 to 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. How do we respond to the truth that meaning in this life cannot be found from this life? Here's our response. Get over the sun. In other words, life under the sun is life lived horizontally 
It's life lived in, in, in relationship to all the things here on this earth. It's a life ignoring the God who lives beyond the sun, who created the sun, who created all the things on this earth. If you want to live rightly under the sun, look beyond the sun, look to God. And that's exactly what Solomon does in these verses. Yes, it's true. Meaning in this life cannot be found from this life. The solution isn't found in anything under the sun. The solution is to look to the creator. So look again at verses 24 and 25. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The solution, dear brother, sister, friend, to the meaninglessness of this life is to look to God, to look to your creator. Let me suggest three practical ways that we can do this. Number one, we need to remember the giver. That's exactly what Solomon is saying in verse 24. Your food, your drink, your work, every good pleasure that can be enjoyed without sin comes from the hand of God. Now when you hear something like Ecclesiastes chapter 2 or John Mayer's song, Something's Missing, the temptation for us humans is to swing the pendulum over to the other extreme. Right? There's no meaning in lavish luxury and pleasure, so I'm going to live the simple life. And I'm going I'm you know, to get some land, and it's just going to be me, and I'm going to get rid of all my technology, and I'm going to get rid of all my entertainment. I'm going to live off the land. I'm going to live the simple life. But that's not the answer. The answer is not in having plenty or in having little. The answer is to look to the giver. If the solution was merely living the simple life, then everybody living below the poverty line would be content. That's not true, is it? There are discontent rich people and discontent poor people because both types of discontent people are living life under the sun and not remembering the giver. The answer is not more or less but putting whatever pleasures you have in their proper perspective. They are not gods. They are gifts. They're gifts to be enjoyed. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, when he writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul does not say, as for the rich in this present age, tell them to sell all their stuff and take a vow of poverty. He doesn't say that. He says, remind them that their wealth is a gift from God. Remind them not to set their hopes on what they have, but in their creator. Dear brother, sister, friend, whether you're rich or poor, whether you have much or little, you can be content in this life, not by changing your circumstances, but by remembering your creator. Remember the giver. Number two, we look to God under the sun. We look to him and get beyond, get over the sun when we remember the guardrails that he set up for us. Solomon doesn't make that explicit here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, but we know from the rest of Scripture that God sets guardrails for how his gifts should be enjoyed, doesn't he? Most of the gifts, not all of them, but most of the gifts that Solomon enjoyed were not sinful in and of themselves. Most of them could have been enjoyed within their proper context. So for example, comedy and entertainment... Is that a gift from God? Yes or no? Yes. Well, sure. It can certainly be enjoyed by a Christian. But God sets guardrails on how we can use that gift. You can't turn entertainment into an idol. You can't let it be your all-consuming pleasure in life. You can't look to comedy or entertainment for ultimate satisfaction. 
You need to be careful that your entertainment is not tempting you to sin. So you should set boundaries on what things you will and will not be entertained by because we have a goal that's bigger than our entertainment. It's the giver of that entertainment. So remember the guardrails. Another example is the gift of wealth. It's not a sin to be wealthy. And by the way, brother, sister, friend, let me suggest to you that the very fact that you're here in the United States of America makes you much wealthier than most of the world. You might not consider yourself wealthy, but compared to most of the world, you are. Your wealth is not a sin, necessarily. It is a sin to put your hope in money. It is a sin to put your security in money. It is a sin to hoard your money and not share and give and use it for the glory of God. It's a sin to make your treasures on earth, but it's not a sin to have treasures on earth. God sets the guardrails throughout his word. Or think of the gift of sex. God sets the guardrails on how we can use that gift. It cannot be an idol. It cannot be enjoyed outside the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. It cannot be enjoyed in a way that devalues or demeans your spouse. So we remember our creator. We live life rightly under the sun when we remember the guardrails that God has put on the gifts that he's given us. So let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, how are you doing with the gifts that you've received? Are you using them properly? Are you idolizing them? Are you looking to them for joy and satisfaction? Are you rejecting what God says about how to use those gifts? Are you considering what the scripture says at all? Solomon says in verse 26 that there's a reward that awaits us if we're faithful. Look at verse 26 again. For the one who pleases God, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What's, t- what's Solomon talking about in verse 26? I think he's looking forward to the final judgment where, where all that the wicked has will be taken away and given to those who please God. Jesus talks about that in a number of his parables. But before you start feeling really good, about yourself, as you look at verse 26, there's a serious problem that all of us need to consider. Notice what the verse says. To the one who pleases God is given wisdom and knowledge, etc., etc. Okay, here's the question. Who among us, on our own, can say, I please God? Romans chapter three says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you might think, well, that's not really talking about me. I actually do some pretty good stuff. Isaiah 64, six says, all your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. On your best day, your best works are disgusting in the sight of God apart from Jesus. If you really let this sink in, all of us are doomed. You really let it sink in. If nobody pleases God on our own, we're doomed to a life under the sun that is ultimately unsatisfying, a death that is absolutely unavoidable, and a final judgment where every good gift we do have is forever taken away. You say, I thought this was supposed to be hopeful. There is hope. But it only comes as we, number three, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Who is the one who pleases God in verse 26? Who's the one who pleases God? The same one who heard from heaven a voice at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well, what? Pleased. The same one who heard a voice at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
Jesus had far less possessions and pleasurable experiences than his great-great-great-great-grandpa Solomon. And yet Jesus was the only person in history who could look at verse 26 and say, that promise applies to me. And yet, think about what Jesus did. Rather than receiving the promise in verse 26, Jesus endured its opposite. Instead of all of our stockpiled treasures going to Jesus, all of our stockpiled sin and the wrath that we deserve was laid upon Jesus. Why? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There's your hope, friend. There's your hope. It is not in you. It is not in this life. It is only in Jesus. And as it turns out, there is a way for us to please God, but it's not by working for it. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here's how you please God, dear friend, by trusting in Jesus, by putting your faith in Jesus. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've been searching for happiness, something feels missing in your life. The solution is not more stuff under the sun, but to get above the sun and look to the son who died for you in your place. To look to Christ and believe in him. And to the Christian, for us, once again, we're reminded that there is no ultimate satisfaction in this stuff. So look to Jesus again and be reminded that he is our only hope. Everything else is vanity and striving after wind. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son as we come to you right now, there might be some in this room who are seeking for meaning and satisfaction and pleasure and hope in this life and the things in this life under the sun. Father, we pray right now in this moment that they would look to Jesus that they would look to the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. May they look to the one who lived a life without sin, who was tempted by all the pleasures of this life and yet not once gave in to those temptations. Father, we thank you for our Jesus who deserved every good thing that we could ever earn and yet instead he endured all of the wrath for all of our sin and rose from the dead so that we can have life and hope and peace and joy. To the unbeliever in this room, we pray, Father, that you would grant them repentance and faith to be saved today. And to the Christian in this room, we thank you for reminding us yet again not to put our hope in the things of this earth, but only in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.